Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The level of inequality produced by 0809 global financial crisis was nothing compared to what is going on right now. We, are, we may be at an order of magnitude worse in terms of the way in which the poorest, the most vulnerable are suffering. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Fareed Zakaria. I uh, probably know him from his CNN show, Fareed Zakaria GPS. He's a former editor of Newsweek International, author of a bunch of really, really fascinating books. But his new one is 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. And, and, and in it, he's obsessing over a bunch of the same things that I have been ruminating over in, in, in the last couple of months, but in particular, how coronavirus is going to reshape our network of global alliances, how it will reshape the balance of power between different countries, what it's going to mean for the U.S.-China relationship, which I think you all know by now is one of my very big concerns. And so I wanted to have him on because we've been talking a lot about the election um, and we we're going to talk more about it in the coming weeks. But the president's primary power is foreign policy. That is where um, he, or in maybe a better world, she, has the actual space to act um, in a relatively unrestrained fashion, at least compared to what they can do on domestic policy and legislative policy. And it gets a lot less attention in, in, our, in our politics, despite often being much more consequential. I'm writing a piece right now about what I think, about what one should think the most important election uh, of their lifetime is. And for reasons I'll defend more on the piece, I think it was 2000, but it's 2000 because of the space it opened up for George W. Bush to act on foreign policy. And so understanding the actual foreign policy situation, crises, and even potential opportunities that present themselves is really, really important. Um, so I'm excited to have Zakaria on the show. Um, as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at VoxMedia.com. Here is Fareed Zakaria. Fareed Zakaria, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. So one thing I've always appreciated about your books is the capsule overviews of political and economic systems that I don't live in. And so I wanted to begin here with an exercise. I'd like to hear how you describe the political economic condition of America right now if you didn't live in it and weren't hampered by the need to cater to the very gentle way we like to talk about ourselves. Gosh, um, I think that one would have to look at America from the outside and say, this is a country of incredible uh, variety in the sense of a country that on the one hand is 
the most dynamic economy in the world, the most dynamic society in the world at some level, at another level, incredibly dysfunctional with a state that can sometimes seem to be barely functioning at all with huge inequalities, with you know an extraordinary uh, de- degree of local variation that you almost see nowhere else. And o- I would overlay that uh, by saying that it is a country that is coming to grips with ethnic diversity, racial diversity uh, on a scale that it perhaps hasn't done since the 1960s. And that that is the, the overlay that we are dealing with politically. You can call it populism, but in America, always these things uh, have a particular and parochial feel to them. Uh, and, and that parochial feel is, you know, is what Gunnar Myrtle called the American tragedy, uh, the American dilemma when he when he wrote about it, because it is so distinctive for America, the racial issue, that it it ends up capturing the, the, the politics no matter what. When I was preparing for this conversation, I've been going back and reading some of your o- older books. And something that is striking to me in them is that, and you can tell me if this is wrong, but is it you believe in America, that to some degree, even I think more so than maybe those of us who grew up in it and were suffused in its kind of ideas. As a foreign policy scholar and, and somebody who who immigrated here, that you believed in its self-conception or at least its ability to one day live up to that self-conception. And I want to know if anything in that has changed for you over the past decade or two, or if watching what we have done or have become has surprised or disillusioned you? That's a great question. Um, I think the way I begin it is somewhat biographically. You know, I, I was a kid who grew up in India uh, and in the 60s and 70s, really it was in the 70s, uh, America seemed like, really did seem like the place where the future was being invented. You know, in India, people would criticize American foreign policy, but there was still enormous admiration and fascination with America just for what it was, you know, for Hollywood, for it always seemed like California in particular was inventing the future. Whatever mad uh, trend was taking place in California today was going to be what the world was going to be doing 10 years or 15 years later. And I still have that in me, you know, as the, as the, the immigrant kid who saw this, this country uh, as just tremendously exciting, at, at times vulgar, at times cra- crass, at times brash, but always exciting and, and uh, you know, kind of capturing your imagination. I also, I think as a scholar, have always, maybe because I grew up outside America, maybe because I have some comparative perspective, I've always compared America to the rest, you know, to other countries. In other, in other words, when people talk about American foreign policy, uh, my frame of reference has always been compared to what? Uh, the United States has had more power than almost any country in the history of the world. When other countries have had that kind of power, look at what they did. Uh, you know, whether it's Germany, whether it's Great Britain, whether it's France, whether it's the Habsburg Empire, whether it's the Soviet Union. So that, to a certain extent, tempers the kind of anti-Americanism that I sometimes hear, you know, and I would say particularly on the left uh, in terms of American foreign policy. I don't in any way doubt that America has been venal and incompetent and done screwed up in many ways around the world. But what I look at is that Every great power does that. It acts in unilateral, arbitrary, self-interested ways. America has uniquely 
also tried to do things that have been beneficial, that have that have actually uh, re- really tried to create a better, more stable world. This is, to my mind, the greatest legacy of the greatest president of modern times, Franklin Roosevelt, who really remade the world um, in, an, in a way that no other great power would have done. So I, I start giving you that, that ba- basis to give you a sense of just how hopelessly kind of pro-American I am. Um, and then I've had a very happy experience in America. You know, I have not had uh, experienced discrimination. I've had a very, my experience of America has been a country that has been welcoming, that has tried to recognize talent, that has tried to deal with this, you know, uh, brown skin Muslim kid from, from Mumbai, India. Uh, and it has never seemed to matter. The thing that has changed for me is in the last five years, and it really has been the five years of Donald Trump, I have seen a nasty side of America, a bitter, pessimistic, dark side of America that I had not seen before. Now, some of it is stuff that shows up in your Twitter feed. Some of it is worse than that. I've had some you know, pretty uh, bad stuff. People have called my house and threatened my daughters. Some of it is just the kind of writing and what is interesting to me about it is I got some of that after 9-11, um, you know, because I'm Muslim, uh, at least born Muslim. It, it had a different quality to it. Uh, there was an anger. There was an emotionalism. Uh, what feels very different about the last five years is it feels like a kind of rising tide of, of nationalism directed against people like me, people who don't look the same, who have different uh, names and things like that. That has been very unsettling. Um, it hasn't been enough to puncture my optimism, but I. But when you ask, you know, just honestly, that that is different from the America that I've known for 35 years. Do you, do you think you're, as a pundit, as an analyst, emotionally suited to, to this moment? And, and I ask this because I'm asking it functionally of myself. That's something I see in you that I, I see in me as a, uh, an even keeledness, a sort of baseline optimism, but a tendency to to see things and find a calm within them, like a like a, a point of analytical calm that doesn't seem to me to reflect the country right now. And, and I'm curious how you felt in relationship to that, as you as you use words bitter and pessimistic. Um, one thing that I just see with it is. Fury, right? America has been gripped by a kind of fury, and I spent a lot of time, and you've, you know, we've talked about my book on, on on this, trying to analyze that fury. And at the same time, I often just feel a little bit ill-suited to it. Um, and I, and I wonder just how much of the problem is trying to see and understand and assess a reaction in terms that are not the terms the reaction itself is playing out in? Gosh, that's a that's a great question. And, I, and I'm flattered that you think that there is a, uh, a similarity because I also notice that similarity. And I and I notice it in all your writings. And I notice that, you know, when people you, when people attack you, they attack you for a similar kind of thing that they attack me for. So the New Yorker reviewed your book and I found the review infuriating because Basically, the point of the, the the book was why is Ezra Klein not more angry about all, all the things he's describing? And my answer to that, my defense of you, would have been because he's trying to analyze this. 
He's trying to understand it. He's trying to give, make you, give you the tools to put this in historical context and comparative context. If you lose all that and you're just one more shouting voice, one more emotional uh, moment, I, I, I don't think you, you actually add that much to the conversation. Now, you say correctly that, first of all, there may be a, a place for that kind of thing and maybe you and I are not as suited uh, to it. But it does seem as though this is a time when people want to hear the shouters, when they want to hear emotion. Uh, I tend to think that at a time like this, when everyone is getting emotional, when everyone is getting passionate, uh, that you need uh, analysis even more. You need the ability to look at a situation and understand it uh, even more. I think at least there's a very important role for that. But you're right, the the, the impetus on both sides is to have greater and greater emotional content, greater and greater sense of outrage, uh, and less of that calm analysis. I, I At some level, I can't change who I am, but I also think I tend to believe that the way you fight unreason is with reason. I'm not going to be able to shout louder than, than Sean Hannity. But what I can do is to try to describe the world in a way that is more you know, intelligent, more considered, more thoughtful than, than the shouters. Uh, and I have to, in some ways, the liberal project is about fighting unreason with reason. Can I ask you, Ezra, how, how would you answer your own question? I'm not sure yet. It's something I asked it of you because um, it, it's something I'm giving some thought to. So let me give a, let me tell you the part of it that I'm thinking about, which is I think about my own project over the past, let's call it 15 years, um, which is when I came into journalism, my frustration was that political journalism was overwhelmingly dominated by horse race work and policy was shunted to the side. And I'd be out covering campaigns and, you know, out there with campaign reporters and they would tell me about how they just love campaigns and the excitement. And I always thought it was like borderline sociopathic, that if you enjoy campaigns, you're missing the stakes. And so part of my work for a long time was to just get some bare level of policy analysis to the center or near the center of the conversation of American politics. Um, and obviously, I'm not alone in that project. You did work like that. Um, Kevin Drum and Matt Iglesias and Paul Krugman. And uh, all kinds of great people have been have been involved in that. I think it was largely successful. But something I have been thinking about part over the past couple of years is then any success contains within it the seeds of its next failure. Like I, re I really believe that the strength of anything ends up being its weakness too. And one thing that that mode of analysis, for all of its value, really failed in was what do you do when an argument begins coming to you in a form you either do not yourself recognize well, or have you, not, you have not um, told your audience to recognize? So what do you do when people are angry, upset? And I'm not here just talking, by the way, about Trump supporters. I'm talking about, this has been coming from a lot of different parts of American life, including on the left. And there, the idea, Something is being said, but it has not yet been like ushered into the center of American po political like policy discourse. There aren't policies around it yet. There isn't good studies of it yet. And so for a bit, it's very easy to dismiss it as not empirical enough, not rigorous enough. How do you hear that? And particularly, how do you hear that if sort of by nature, you're somebody who prefers 
who seeks out a kind of even-temperedness and respects that in other people. And I think that can be a real major space of uh, failure, right? I think for certain pundits and at times for myself, that can be a real space where you miss things. And one of the reasons it struck me as an interesting um, question for this conversation, because it's going to get us into a, an earlier book you wrote that you actually gave me uh, about a year ago now, or not even a year ago now, probably six months ago now, um, The Future of Freedom, is I think you actually saw a lot of this coming. Um, you wrote this book about how as freedom expands, as democracy expands, often those things breed illiberalism. But when I read that book, there's a... Like an, like an interest and a calm and a curiosity to it. That then when I think about the 20 years that it ended up reasonably well describing or seeing what was coming in, they have just, they've not operated on that level. And so I wonder about how, how do we correctly understand and study and report on the emotional level of politics, given its power and given its strength, when a lot of the tools that feel like they help you understand politics at scale don't work well on that level. One way I think about this issue is, does one believe that there is a complete monopoly of virtue on one side of any issue that you're that you're looking at? Uh, and particularly because I look at international uh, issues a lot, I, I just don't find that that's true. There are areas where that's true. I mean, I think of race relations in the United States, you know, denying blacks the vote in the 1960s completely unambiguous that there was a monopoly of virtue on one side of the issue. But there are a lot of areas where there are people trying to maximize different values and in doing so making different trade-offs. And I think that one loses that, that, that sense if you take the purely emotional or passionate uh, view of, of politics. And I think you're right that you know there is a danger that you're missing something. But I tend to think the people who emphasize the passion and the emotion uh, are also missing something that, you know, there are people on the other side who also believe what they believe and trying to put yourself in their in their heads and trying to understand why they believe what they believe. You know, I have a chapter in the book about elites and why is it that this has become so polarized, the idea of listening to medical advice and listening to, uh, to healthcare experts? Well, because it's part of a much larger class struggle that is taking place in America. And there is enormous resentment of a kind of urban educated elite that is telling everybody how to live their lives. I, and, and I would be very much part of that elite. But I do try to understand how it might look for somebody on the other side. So I think that's maybe part of my answer. Yezra Klancha will be back after a short break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, 
an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Something that you say uh, in Deep in the, the New Book is that the most notable thing about Donald Trump's foreign policy is its absence. Um, you say that with the absence of a couple of impulsive gestures, like trying to um, win a Nobel Prize for making peace with North Korea, which obviously didn't work out, there really is no Donald Trump foreign policy. And I was sitting with that because after the episode with you, I'm going to have somebody on who's really going to try to articulate the Donald Trump foreign policy and trying to decide if I thought that was true. And what does it even mean to have a foreign policy? Donald Trump has a worldview. It's a highly transactionalist worldview. It's a zero-sum worldview. It's a worldview where for another country to do well, we have to do poorly. It's a worldview that denies positive-sum relationships in the international order. It's a worldview that feels America's been taken advantage of. And it doesn't express itself with a coherence that like if if you were writing it into a foreign policy, which I know you you probably could, it would attain. But on the other hand, it is there. And in some ways, I think it's more powerful for being guttural. Um, and I wonder how much we miss it. So let me actually ask the question that way. Why do you say Donald Trump doesn't have a foreign policy when in some ways foreign policy sometimes strikes me as the only thing uh, he truly has? I, I, what I meant by that is that if you look at Trump's foreign policy, it is fundamentally uh, destructive. That is, he doesn't like America's engagement with the world. Uh, and so his 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 signature way to deal with it is to essentially try to say, I'm just going to withdraw. I'm going to get out of all these bad trade deals. I'm going to get out of these deals you know, with NATO. I'm going to get out of the leadership position the United States has on human rights issues. I'm going to get out of the, the position the United States was taking, corralling other countries in Asia to be part of a counter-Chinese trade agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, it, it's so in a sense you're right. Of course, you know having a destructive foreign policy or a deconstructionist foreign policy is a foreign policy. But what I was trying to get at was that he really represents a break from 70 years of American foreign policy, which has really since since Roosevelt and and Truman after that uh, accepted the idea that America was deeply engaged in the world, deeply engaged in kind of constructing the architecture of the international system and then sustaining it, that this was something the United States did because it was good for the world, but it was profoundly good for America because it created a world in which the United States was the most powerful country in a stable, peaceful world order. And Trump really dissents from all that. And as a result, has a foreign policy that is more about 
limiting America's exposure to the world, limiting its engagement with the world. As you say, a, trans, a series of transactions with big big countries, mostly to try to you know to, to sort of get something from them. But it's some fundamental level that does feel very very much like a, a minimalist or an isolationist policy that takes care of your, your yourself in, a, in in limited transactional ways, but would not would doesn't doesn't comport with the kind of foreign policy that has animated America since 1945. I think the the line in the book, and I think it's in that same chapter that I that stuck with me the most was that you wrote that the key question in U.S. foreign policy that policymakers never, ever answer is what would be an acceptable level of influence for China to have given its economic weight? And something about Trump, because I agree that is actually the key question, and I agree that it is never really answered. And what I'll say almost in Trump's defense is he does, he comes closer in many ways than even I think in Obama to answering it clearly, which is they should not have an influence anywhere near commensurate with their economic weight. And we should do anything we can, um, although I think it often seems, given his feeling about that there's not much we can do, to weaken them. Now, put aside whether it works, right? He, he, execution is never his strong point. But I think he answers that question and the people around him answer pretty clearly, that if you take the fundamental foreign policy question as a rise of China, that their answer is we should prevent it and we should polarize Americans against it. Um, but something that actually struck me a little bit um, in that chapter is you don't really answer that question. And you have a foreign affairs essay where you get into it more. But but I'm curious what you think the answer to it is. What is an acceptable level of influence for China to have? What should America be targeting given China's size and, and economic power and trajectory? I think you've framed the question exactly right. Uh, my answer to it would be a good bit more than we are willing to do right now. Uh, in other words, I think we really have to ask ourselves, can we live in a world in which there is another very powerful, very influential country that has an, you know, has a kind of sphere of influence, and I don't mean sphere in a 19th century geographical sense, but has a kind of weight in the world uh, that is in some ways comparable to the United States, maybe a good bit less, but, but not nothing. You know, we've gotten used to, in, since 1945, the idea that countries grow enormously rich uh, and they have no footprint on the world uh, or virtually no footprint in the world because the two big countries that grew after 45, Germany and Japan, first of all, grew as protectorates of the United States, grew within American security spheres. They, they were both, their security is guaranteed by the United States and have historical reasons why they cannot be particularly active on the world stage. That is not normal. What is much more normal is what we saw for the preceding 400 years of history, the rise of France, the rise of Germany, the rise of Britain. And we need to put ourselves more in that historical mode and ask ourselves, you know, China is now the second largest economy in the world. It's larger than the next five put together. Uh, it is the second largest military in the world larger than the next four put together. In that context, is it reasonable for it to have a greater uh, uh, say in the South China Sea? Is it reasonable for it to want to, for example, have a Chinese person who alternates maybe with a Western one to head the IMF or the World Bank? Is it reasonable for it to say, 
you know, some of these trade rules have to take into account some of our concerns. I mean, you know, most of these uh, systems have take enormous account for American peculiarities and parochialisms. You know, we, we always make it out like we are the greatest free traders in the world. We're not. We have massive subsidies. We have all kinds of uh, hidden barriers to trade. But we sort of expect that because we are the world's leading power, we get to do that. And my sense is that there is a kind of imperial class in Washington, both parties, by the way, that really doesn't get the degree to which you have to, you have to recognize that the Chinese feel that they, they deserve some greater recognition uh, politically, economically, culturally. Uh, and one of my worries is that we are going down a very tragic path where because we are not willing to give on some small things, the Chinese start to push harder and harder. We view that as expansionism that is totally unacceptable. We push back and then you go down a classic security spiral of the kind that we saw in the 18th and 19th century in Europe. And this is to me the actual scariest thing we're facing, but but I want to I want to get at it from a couple different levels here. So one is that I take it as the biggest conceptual mistake in American foreign policy in the last 20 years, which is different than the biggest foreign policy blunder, which I think is clearly Iraq. But the biggest conceptual mistake that China would liberalize, would become a liberal democracy as it was brought into the global economic system, as it became richer. And instead, you you talk about Xi's third revolution, they've become more authoritarian. Um, As you see with the treatment of the Uyghurs, they've become um, more brutal. They have both become more powerful, and I think from a position of at least American ideals, which we can argue about how much those are instantiated in our our actions, particularly right now, but at least from the position of American ideals, it is more concerning and threatening and dangerous to see them attaining this kind of power. So how do you balance those two things, the power that their size would somewhat naturally grant them? But also the the very reasonable fear is given what appears to be changing in that country as they develop that kind of power. This is a very hard one because what you are what we are trying to do is to create a more stable, more peaceful world that doesn't spiral out of control with, you know, nuclear arms races, with a space race, with cyber warfare, with all the kinds of things that that you could imagine, all fueled by the way by artificial intelligence and quantum computing. So. So it's a it's a dark world we could go in, go down. What we're trying to do when we create a more stable system is to limit the potential for that kind of dark outcome. Uh, that means what we're trying to do is to get China to behave in a more rule based way, in a more to be in more integrated into the structures of the international system, to share power in places like the UN. All that is not about making China more democratic. It's about making it more uh, predictable, reliable, rule-based, um, and, and sort of integrated into the global, into the liberal international order. And by the way, on that measure, we've succeeded, you know, quite dramatically. China, Mao's China, was the world's largest rogue state, and China today is a remarkably responsible, even conservative country. I mean, it hasn't invaded anyone since 1979. It has, of all the five permanent members in the Security Council, it has used force the least, which is to say essentially not at all uh, across its borders. But then we confront the issue you're talking about, which is what about the fact that China is a deeply illiberal state? 
I tend to believe that in the, I mean, you know, in the long run, I'm an optimist. I don't believe that you can have a country that is modernizing its economy, that is modernizing its political system in, in various ways, that is creating a larger middle class and, and still have a deeply repressive, closed political system. I don't believe market Leninism, to use Nick Kristof's phrase, is ultimately stable. But when you're dealing with a country the size of China, the scale of China, I don't think we have it in our power to hasten that transformation, to accelerate those changes. And I think we do that, you know, we have to do that very carefully. I, I always want America to stand for its ideals. I always want America to, to voice those ideals. But do I believe that the United States should take on as its foreign policy a kind of revolutionary project of, of uh, spreading democracy to China? Uh, no, because we won't be able to. It has so many uh, potential downsides. I, it, it, it's difficult to imagine that this would work because we often forget this. Nationalism in these countries resents that kind of outside pressure, even if done in causes that they might secretly agree with. So for all those reasons, I'm I'm very wary of, of doing that. And I think it's important to try to distinguish between these two projects, having China be more integrated and responsible and, and reliable as an international actor, and having China be a wonderful liberal democracy that we would we would all applaud for its domestic values. But but let me let me distinguish maybe between two more projects uh, within that because I, I think I agree with most of that and in particular I agree that the idea that America is going to export democracy to China is foolish. But what is the right American response on China's functionally at this point an internal internment or? bordering on things that begin to look like genocide of the Uyghurs, um, certainly culturally. What is right American response to that? Because that's different than whether or not China is a democracy internally. China can be something else in a democracy, and, and that's fine. But a massive campaign of displacement and um, cultural destruction, sterilization, if you believe it, certainly some of the reports, that's something really else and something much more sinister. I think in some ways it's worth going back to the Cold War and remembering how we handle some of these kinds of issues. Uh, there was always this debate during the Cold War, partly because in those days we were more scared about nuclear annihilation. And there were a lot of people who said, you know, don't say anything about the Soviet Union uh, and its brutality. There were also fellow travelers. So this was a kind of much richer debate uh, that used to take place in the 1960s and 70s. But I think where we ended up was saying, the United States should speak out. It should always voice its objections. It should make clear that that, that it's not okay um, and that the United States will always stand in opposition to these ideas. And, and you know, you could have, th you'd have things like the Helsinki uh, Accord, which tried to force the Soviet Union to at least on paper uh, commit to certain kinds of rights. So that that project was a very important project. But, uh, you know, a lot of people would say, well, it was just intellectual. It didn't mean anything. You were just giving speeches. I think those are important. Words are important. Standards are important. But it is ultimately happening inside China, one of the most powerful countries in the world. And it's very difficult to know how you would handle it. Now, you know, is there a limit beyond which, you know, this the, you, you would, you would, be required to act morally, ethically. 
Maybe, you know, I think it's important not to use the word genocide too loosely because what is going on with the Uyghurs is not entirely clear. There is there are clearly uh, uh, restrictions. There are clearly is re-education. There clearly is internment. Uh, and in a cultural sense, these people are being denuded. When I look at the state of Kashmir in India, which is a Muslim majority state that has been under martial law in India for 30 odd years now, maybe more, uh, where by some accounts, 100,000 people may have been killed in various kinds of state-sponsored or vigilante killings where habeas corpus uh, does not exist, where a free press uh, does not exist. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. And I think it's, you know, there is a certain, uh, Kant used to make a distinction between uh, a, a moral politician and a political moralist. For him, a moral politician was somebody who applied the same standard everywhere. And a political moralist was somebody who selectively got, used moral outrage in the cases that he wanted or she wanted to, uh, you know, for political reasons, highlight. And, and I'm conscious of that. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of bad stuff in the world. And and if we are going to say that, you know, the Uyghurs is 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 are the is the straw that breaks the camel's back. In China, let's just be sure we we know what else is going on around the world. No, I, I think this is a really important point, and I want to hold on it because, on the one hand, I feel like it would be immoral to discuss China right now without discussing the Uyghurs, and on the other hand, I think this is the best counterargument and the one that gives me the most pause, which is that when Washington wants to create an external enemy, it focuses on human rights abuses. And it uh, ignores the human rights abuses, or in many cases, say, our support of what Saudi Arabia has done in Yemen uh, supports the human rights abu abuses of, of some that are considered allies. And so I never quite know what to do with this. It's a very tricky situation because it is completely the case that these abuses are, 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 are real, are grotesque, um, should offend all of us. And on the other hand, I know that there is no easier way to morally blackmail people into going along with an, uh, an, an agenda of antagonism or, or oppositionism than centering the kinds of foreign rights abuses in one place that we ignore or at times support in others. Yeah. And it it, it leaves you as a moral person and, uh, if you're trying to be a moral person in your foreign policy in a very difficult spot. You put it exactly right. And, and the example you use is, is the one I would have used. If you are looking at violence against Muslims, there is very little doubt that Yemen, which is the world's greatest humanita humanitarian tragedy right now, would score much higher than what is happening to the Uyghurs, you know, in the sense that they are, you know, the 10% of the country is starving to death, all of which is essentially a, a, a direct result of Saudi Arabia's campaign uh, in Yemen. Now, not only, you know, there's, there's an argument here where which is, is not just about how bad it is, but how much we have involvement with it. You know, China's treatment of the Uyghurs, we have very little in involvement in. The Saudi war in Yemen is being prosecuted with American weaponry. Uh, it is being prosecuted by one of America's closest allies, and it's being prosecuted with a, with a very clear, explicit go-ahead that has been given to the Saudi government. So which is worse? Right. I mean, that's but that's part of what we have to be thinking about. And if if there's a you know, if there's a Hippocratic oath in foreign policy, at the very least, we could do no harm before we try to, you know, make 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 the world perfect. 
Desert Clown Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. think Joe Biden's foreign policy is? You've covered him a long time. How would you describe it? I think Biden very much stands in that in that long tradition of American foreign policy I was talking about, that he believes deeply in the idea that America should be engaged with the world, uh, that the American project uh, of Franklin Roosevelt and, and Truman was you know, a noble project, was a transformational one that has made for a better world, that America benefits from it enormously. Uh, I, I think he's he's a kind of liberal international idealist in that sense. Uh, I think the first great acts of Biden's foreign policy will be probably to reach out to the allies, because there is a you know a particular peculiarity to Trump's worldview, which I think you you nicely described, which is that he has really turned his wrath mostly on America's closest allies. You know, the odd thing about Donald Trump is he sort of hates the world and he hates foreigners. But he really hates those countries that have been allied to the United States for 70 years and whose soldiers have fought and died in American-led wars for 70 years. Germany, France, Britain, uh, Canada. The ones he likes are Putin's Russia and Erdogan's Turkey and to a certain extent Modi's India. You know, so it's a, it's a very peculiar uh, ordering. And I think uh, Biden would probably right-size that those relationships and, and move to embrace the, the Germanys, the, the the Chinas, the Japans, the South Koreas of the world. You know, at some level, Biden will be a, a, an effort at restoration. I am myself critical of that because I think that you can't just go back to some imagined stability. The world has changed. We, we really have entered a bipolar world. We've entered a very different age. And so we need, we need more creative thinking and we really need to ask ourselves the question you and I were talking about, which what does it look like to be in a world where others want power, want influence? Is there a way to create a more stable, more multilateral world? 
because the old world where America just dominated and set the agenda and paid the the price, uh, that's not going to happen. The American people, for one thing, are not willing to to do it, and the rest of the world is not not willing to do it. So that's the place where I don't know what Biden's creative rethinking is and the degree to which he would be willing to creatively rethink it because he is himself a creature of that older order and that older world, which had as its center a a United States that was head and shoulders above everybody else, but also an American public that was willing to essentially subcontract foreign policy to a small group of elites in Washington and to pay these enormous prices. And none of that is true anymore. I've been trying to think about the ways in which Biden has changed, because one of the mistakes with a politician like that can sometimes be that since we've covered them for so long or they've been on the scene for so long, we think we know them. Um, But people change. Um, And in fact, if I go back even to my first big piece about Biden, the cycle, which was this piece about how Biden will never give up on the system and in particular on the Senate, you know, more recently, and we'll see how it all plays out, he's been much more open to things like filibuster reform than that piece predicted. And I think that piece was a very good read of his career, like up until right now. And when I think back on Biden's foreign policy, he's been a very, I, I would describe it as ambitious member of the like liberal or center-left mainstream, which is to say a reasonably ambitious liberal interventionist. His memoirs talk about his pride in in pushing Clinton towards intervening in the massacres in Bosnia. His legacy on Iraq is a little bit more complicated, um, but nevertheless, he ended up voting for the resolution, says in his 2008 memoir, you know, or in a speech that he quotes there, that he told Bush his biggest mistake was not leveling with the American people on what the Iraq intervention would actually take, um, and then had this very weird uh, idea for partitioning Iraq, which was... Again, I will call it gently extraordinarily ambitious in its idea of what America could do. But then when I've watched him over the past 10 you know, or 15 years, sort of heard what his role was in internal Obama administration debates, I've always felt there has been a bit of chastening there, that he was a person arguing against a further commitment in Afghanistan. He was potentially the person, depending on which accounts you believe, but it seems to be true, arguing against doing the more dangerous raid um, on Osama bin Laden, where you actually went in with, with with individual troops as opposed to simply flattening the compound from the air, that there was a caution on him. People talk a lot about how Biden has lost a step rhetorically, and I, I think that's true. I think if you look at, say, his Paul Ryan debate and look at his current debates, there's no doubt that he's aged. But there's also a way in which he often seems to me to have softened a little bit in old age. He's a little bit less ambitious with some of these things, a little bit less um, bullheaded, which may or may not prove true, but it's my impression. And, and I think you know him better than I do, and you've covered him longer. So I'm curious what your impression is on, on how or whether he's changed or if we can even know. I, I think you've read him very well. I think that's, it's entirely the way I would I would describe it. I think he tried to learn from the Iraq experience. Uh, he was against Libya, uh, for example. Um, you point mm-hmm. out he was also uh, he was also against the raid. Uh, again, people forget the alternative, as you say, was to to just bomb the compound and kill whoever was in it. I think that he is somebody who is still, however, very uh, very committed to the uh, the American project you know the the America's engagement with the world he and I like that about him he sees the mu- you know he hears the music he sees the 
the value of that. He there, there's something in a way. This is a, an election uh, between. It's it's actually a, a good election because you really have in personalities and values two very different people. Biden is a warm, open-hearted, broad-minded, idealistic guy who has you know tried to trust his political adversaries, tried to believe in America's role in the world. And when he's made mistakes, they have been mistakes made in that effort to go along, to cut a deal with people on the other side of the aisle, to find ways to make a compromise, to, you know, to open himself up to the world. I, I tend to think that's that's in many ways the best of America's political tradition. The question you ask, which I don't know the answer to, how creative and supple is he going to be uh, going forward? Uh, you know, to what extent are some of these modulations that you see a sign that he sees the new world and knows how to adjust to it? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know he he has a good eye for talent. The people uh, he surrounds himself with, even in his Senate days, were very bright. The people who um, his his aides in foreign policy, people like Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, these are very smart people, very sophisticated in their understanding of the world. And that itself is a good sign. How do you think he differs from Obama in his foreign policy instincts? Gosh, um, I think Obama was more creative and supple in terms of the way he saw the world. He saw this emerging world that we've talked about. Uh, and he knew that America had to adjust to it. Um, I think Obama's problems were never the intellectual understanding of the world. He did have a somewhat Hamlet-like ability to analyze the problem exquisitely, but that left you without without clarity as to exactly which how you were acting, where you wanted to go. Um, you know, he had he had a little bit of the he was in some ways a good example of what what can happen to an intellectual in politics, where you can be you can have too sophisticated an understanding of what's happening. I remember once talking to Jim Baker. The front page of the New York Times was that Obama had offered the Senate uh, Republicans some concession or the other. Uh, and he said, you know what? I, I can never understand this guy. He's so smart. So he sees where the point of compromise should be. And he says, can we just dispense with this whole silly negotiation? Why don't I tell you where I think is a reasonable middle point? And would you agree with me? And he says, he doesn't get human nature. The Republicans want to claw that compromise out of him. They want to get there with, you know, with blood and tears. And he just he just looks at it from from a, on high, analyzes it and says, you know, I'm smart enough to figure out this is where we should all end up. So I, I've always felt about it. That was a very, very interesting and wise way of looking at the difference between this kind of hard boiled political world and Obama as intellectual. It's a funny analysis because I heard an almost exactly similar one from a like a longtime Clinton hand who said that if everybody was like Obama, there'd be no restaurants because there'd be no dates. His version of this, which was a little folksier, was that, you know, you just like show up on the person's doors and be like, so do you want to go to bed? We clearly like each other. <laughs> so, so exactly. A, exactly. A, a, a nice way of putting it. But on that, so something that is distinctive about Biden compared to Obama and compared to Trump and that I think is always easy to underrate with him, is how much he sees the world through relationships. He's somebody who talks about grand foreign policy ideas and talks about policy ideas, but he, when you really listen to him, the thing he will always say about his foreign policy approach 
is he knows the first name of every world leader and they know his and they've talked and he's known them for 20 years and sent their kids a gift and, and, and so on. How much do you think that matters versus how much do you think that can also be a way of misunderstanding the world because personal relationships and how people are with you can often be um, misleading, uh, just like George W. Bush saying he saw into Vladimir Putin's soul and he's a man of peace. Yeah, I think it's actually a danger. I think it's it's you know it's one of the areas where Biden, uh, you're right, he talks about it a lot, and where he has uh, real skills. But the way I'd put it is, uh, in normal times, most of the time, it's it's a useful lubricant, but it can. The important thing is to not let it affect your conceptual understanding of the world. Uh, you know, this is not a personality contest. Uh, countries have deep uh, interests; they act out of those in, those self interests. Uh, understanding that process is very important. It's it's actually at the heart of international affairs. If you look in the 1930s, we actually, I mean, I know there's always a danger of using the using that in that period uh, uh, too much, but it really is instructive. In the 1930s, most of the people who met Hitler misread him. Most of the people who didn't meet Hitler, who were simply watching what Germany was doing under Hitler ended up having a much tougher stance against him. But, you know, Chamberlain most famously, but there were many Western space statesmen who talked to Hitler, either thought he was not particularly impressive or thought he was reasonable. Uh, there's a great danger of that. And my, my worry, by the way, with, with Biden is that he thinks he knows Xi Jinping very well. And my experience of dealing with Chinese leaders, and I obviously don't have anything near his, his experiences, you know, it's all an act. This is their, they are very, this is a closed political system. People act very carefully. These things are all very choreographed. The idea that you actually know these people and have personal relationships with them is a very dangerous one because the, you don't. And I think it's much more important to look at what they do than what they say. How much do you think the fall in perceptions of America globally uh, both during Trump and then importantly during coronavirus, which is something your, your book tracks a bit, is going to matter for foreign policy. I'm looking at a, a Pew poll here that shows that in a bunch of different European countries, UK, Spain, France, Germany, the assessment of America is lower than it was at the nadir of the Bush administration. And that's pretty striking to me. I mean, I remember how hated America was and how you'd have Americans traveling abroad with little Canadian flags on their backpacks mm -hmm. and so on. And then Obama came in and a lot of that just rebounded. Do you think that the Trump era has done permanent damage to America's role in the world if he loses in 2020? Or was it simply an aberration? The question of whether you trust the president of the United States, uh, whether you think American foreign policy is largely benign, that varies dramatically. As you point out, the Iraq war, it, was, it looked terrible. During Vietnam, it looked terrible. There were periods in the early 1980s when the Reagan buildup took place and when the, the Europeans were putting cruise missiles, which had nuclear warheads on them. There were periods of intense disagreement with American foreign policy. Uh, what is different this time around is, I think, two things. One is Trump, because, again, he really wants to leave the world. He, you know, there's a kind of sense in which it's not about a particular policy. It's just that he thinks the whole world is is out to get America and America would be better off by itself. That 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 kind of isolationism is different. And it, I think, worries the world more. 
But I'd say the broader issue that I've been worried about, and as you know, it, I, I talk about it a lot in the book, is that idea that I had when I when I was growing up of America as the this inventor of the future, uh, of the most fascinating country in the world, that has uh, worn uh, poorly in the last decade. You know, so so first you've had 9/11, then you had the Iraq War, then you had the global financial crisis, and then you have Trump. And at the end of it, I think what has happened is people look at the United States and they don't see a city on a hill uh, and they don't see a country that has, has all the answers or even one that's inventing the future. Yeah, there are some great tech companies and they're doing incredibly dynamic things, but there's also a society with these huge inequalities, with a healthcare system that barely functions uh, for, the, for the poorest uh, Americans. And I think that in some ways, the rise of the information revolution and social media has provided people with a, with a better sense of the inner workings of America. And so that America as a model, uh, not what it does, but what it is, has been tarnished. And I think that doesn't come back very easily unless America engages in one of its great acts of renewal and reinvention. And those do happen. You know, I, I, I still believe that the United States has this incredible flexibility and has this incredible uh, imagination and ability to reinvent itself. So I, I very much hope for that, but it will take something on the order of what happened under, under Franklin Roosevelt or under Lyndon Johnson to be able to turn this around. And, and yet our politics remains highly polarized, you know, so we are not, we seem to be at a Does moment. Does Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you tell me, what do you think? But this is a good question for you. So we face these structural realities that I think you would agree with. You and I both think there is a path out. What would it take to break that political logjam and to break that polarization? And, and if you had a Biden victory, a Senate going Democratic, is that all it takes? Because you'd still have 44% of the public or 42% of the public deeply opposed to to those changes. How does that work? No, it doesn't just take a Biden um, victory and Senate Democrats. Look, I've just I've been a broken record on the need for Democrats, if they win, to get rid of the filibuster and govern effectively. If you do that, you're ramming down the throats of that 42 or 40 percent. So I disagree with that. I actually have a I have a contrary view on this. So I want to let me talk about this part, but then I want to talk about something bigger in this, which mm -hmm. is I do not agree with the conventional wisdom that people, that because we are a polarized country, people will resent more aggressive governance more than they will resent less aggressive governance. I think that, for instance, people ultimately end up voting on things like the economy. So a good example of this is Obamacare. And I, I, I go through this example at some length in my kind of mega filibuster piece that came out uh, now a few weeks ago, but people should should look it up. It's called the definitive case against filibuster. Um, very, very humbly. Um, but one of the arguments I'm going through in that is this idea that in a polarized country, an advantage to having ineffective governance is that it's actually better to not do much because of the exact dynamic you're describing here. If we're this divided, then doing much is going to divide us further. And my argument is no, actually, that what happens with ineffective governance, and there's a fair amount of evidence to this, um, to, the, to this point, is that we get trapped in the most polarizing part of any process, which is the political fight over it. So the Affordable Care Act is a great example. 
It is a collection of reasonably popular and even bipartisan ideas. So when it begins and you poll ideas like it, it polls in the 60s and 70s. Chuck Grassley, the ranking Republican um, on Senate finance at that point, says we agree on 80 to 90 percent of this bill. Then it goes into the zero sum thresher of Congress. It becomes highly partisan, highly polarized, which is a strategic decision. It's nothing intrinsic to the bill. It is how Republicans treat the bill, as Mitch McConnell ends up saying later quite explicitly that unless we kept our fingerprints off of it, people would not know there was a great debate going on in this country. So then when it passes, it is an unpopular piece of legislation. It polls at about 38 to 42%, depending. And here we are a couple years later, it is passed. It has been the subject of efforts at repeal, efforts at court nullification, remains a subject of efforts at court nullification. And nevertheless, it now pulls somewhere between 55 and 65%. Um, there's just a morning console poll that put it in the 60s, which was a new high for it. And you could see in the uh, debate when Amy Coney Barrett came up and Joe Biden's immediate move was to note and 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 argue to Americans that someone like her or her in particular, if she was part of a 6-3 court, could remove Obamacare. You saw how much Democrats now see that as actually a unifying thing, a popular thing, something beginning to attain an almost Medicare-like status. And I think you see this on a lot of issues. Bush tax cuts uh, become something that Democrats end up keeping most of because most of them are popular. Um, you can get rid of the, the, the tax cuts at the top end, but they kept, I think, 90-some percent of them, actually. And so actually governing, in my view, is, I don't want to call it depolarizing, that would be going too far, but it is a much more sensible feedback loop where people see things happen and they decide if they like them or they don't. Um, and then things that were once very polarizing, a good example of this on the other side, is Medicare prescription drug benefit. It was unbelievably polarizing what it was, how it passed under George W. Bush. I remember being part of a blog at Talking Points Memo Cafe. I think it was called like the Medicare mess or something like that. It was all about what a disaster it was. And then, you know, it's not my perfect bill, but it actually worked okay. And now no Democrats talk about repealing Medicare Part D. It's become just a background part of, of, of the American Medicare system. So I, I really, really, really disagree with the idea that um, the American people resent governance. What they don't like is political food fighting. Um, and then some things they dislike in governance and they want repealed and some things they end up liking and they want kept. And that's a perfectly reasonable way for a system to work. That said, just being able to govern a little bit more aggressively is not going to fix polarization. To your question about your bigger question here about whether or not there's a path out of this, I think if there is, it's going to simply be generational change. Um, I don't know that there is and would not necessarily predict how any of that is going to play out. But the millennials are becoming the single largest group. They're much more diverse. They have much different political opinions than, say, um, older Americans do right now. And over 10 or 15 years, that's going to change our politics very dramatically. Now, events will come along to shape that, change it, put pressure on it. Um, the parties will reshape their strategies in response. The map will change in response. But that could end up pushing us into a more sustainable place. I think there's definitely a way that Donald Trump ends up looking in American politics like a last gasp of something, uh, a sort of like a like a like a death throw versus the herald of a new kind of uh, capable Republican Party. But there's also a way in which he is the herald of a new kind of Republican Party that is, finds a, a, a consistent minoritarian path to, to governance and begins to use that to make America more and more illiberal so that they can win despite not winning elections. So I could see different ways for it to go, but I think the things that will change it are not 
political strategies per se, but actually the change in the country, which will then in turn change political strategies downstream. The problem is, given some of the problems that we actually face, like climate change, you know, 15, 20 years is a long time to wait. You know, what you're describing in a sense is a very interesting uh, reformulation of the American system politically, because it used to be, as you know, that the idea was that the United States does not have parties like European parties that were highly ideological and polarized, and that everything had to be negotiated within parties, and that parties became dominant for more kind of geographical, complicated reasons, and that the real political debates, the ideological debates took place within the parties. And this worked because you have a system that shares power. You you know, it's divided, Congress, the, the presidency, the, the local governments. What you're saying is, look, we've, we are now in a situation where the parties are ideologically polarized. So what we have to do is, is essentially simulate parliamentary politics. That is, one side has to win. When that side wins, it has to implement everything it believes in, and the public can then take a look at it. And if they don't like it, they vote people out of power, and the other side comes in. And they, the the this, the American system doesn't it, it doesn't re, it doesn't really work as seamlessly as that because of the staggered terms and all the complexities of the divisions of power. Um, it, you know, this is frankly one of the things the founders I think got wrong. Uh, they never imagined political parties. So. What you're what you're trying to do is to take the American system as is and force it into a kind of European style democracy, alternating policies that the public can then have some kind of vote on one way or the other. I I think you're probably right that it's better than than paralysis, but it still is. Uh, you're it's a little bit of you're you're fitting a square peg into a round hole. Oh yeah, no, we're 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 in for for choppy waters. But okay, you asked me about trends, so I have one that I, I want to ask you about, which goes, your book is all about trends. Um, and something I was wondering reading it as I went through, and you have a great chapter on how this is accelerating AI, and it shows globalization is continuing to 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 move forward, and that you know we need to trust experts, but experts also need to get better at trusting the public. I wasn't sure if in the end the book was making the argument. The coronavirus has dramatically changed the world, or truly that it hasn't. That most of those, I think, you believed before coronavirus, and at best are arguing for an acceleration of a trend that was already in play, like the move towards a more digital economy or the um, continuing rise of a globalized world. So, what what is true now? You think about the future, um, or likely about the future, that was false about it three years ago, or unlikely about it three years ago? Like, what has actually changed? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, you know, I say at the beginning of the book that this is really a case where more than anything else, it has accelerated the uh, trends that were taking place anyway. I, I use that Lenin quote where he says there were decades when nothing happened and now there are weeks when decades happen. It turns out, of course, when fact checking it, I couldn't figure out whether Lenin actually did say it. But as they say in journalism, it was too good to check. So I said, Lenin's supposed to have said this. But so for the most part, what you're seeing are acceleration of, of existing trends. The way I would answer your question is this. There are two areas where I think the change is so dramatic that it could upend the, 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 the existing order in ways that are totally unpredictable and frankly quite scary. The first is inequality. I think there's no question that I'm, I, I would argue that I'm right, that the effect of the pandemic has been to massively accelerate inequality. It's going to have happen. I mean, if you just look at 
the publishing business. You know, I think Amazon was 30% of the book sales industry before the pandemic. It's now close to 70%. And that must be true of every, you know, if you look at mom and pop hardware stores, if you look at small businesses, you look at restaurants. I, I notice even within restaurants, the ones that are able to succeed are the ones that have, you know, the chains that have five restaurants or 25 restaurants. So you're seeing the big get bigger, the, the, the small get smaller. You're seeing a massive shift in terms of the, the distribution of wealth. The level of inequality produced by 08, 09 global financial crisis was nothing compared to what is going on right now. We, are, we may be at an order of magnitude worse in terms of the way in which the poorest, the most vulnerable are suffering. So if that inequality really spirals out of control and we do not do anything to, to affect it, to address it, I really worry because I don't think you can have a stable society in which you have that level of accelerating inequality fueled by digitization, fueled by uh, all these other trends that I'm talking about. Before we get to the second, let me ask you the same question on that that you asked me, which is, do you see anything coming that could disrupt that? And in the back of my head, have you read the book, The Great Leveler, The Great Leveling? Yeah, yeah, Walter Scheidel. Yeah, I think the most pessimistic book I've read in the past five years. It's (laughs) unbelievably depressing. Yeah. So to, for, for the listeners, this is a book that basically says the only time you have been able to reduce inequality in human history, and I think he begins with ancient Greece, or maybe even before, I think he begins with, uh, with the, with the you know, first agricultural settlements, uh, is real violence of a kind that essentially destroys uh, most of society, which means that it destroys the propertyed class more than everybody else because they have more to be destroyed. It's a very gloomy picture of the world. I don't entirely, there are parts of it I disagree with, but I think, uh, you know, he makes you realize that the world has lived with a lot of inequality. But what he points out is that there have been many political turbulent, you know, uh, revolutions associated. His point is that they often aren't that successful, but that doesn't mean they don't happen. So I, I don't quite I, I, it doesn't make me any less uh, any any less worried. Put it that way. All right. And so, what's the? So, do you think that there's something coming that is big enough potentially to disrupt the level of inequality we're seeing? Uh, I do. I think that if you had a fundamentally different understanding of the role of the state in the in these areas, I think it could make a difference. I don't know that you would massively change the raw numbers in inequality because the trend lines, unfortunately, are moving. Uh, to a world where education and skills and access to capital and access to uh, urban centers makes a huge difference. But I do think that, you know, one feature of the modern world, and you see this more in Northern Europe than, than in other places, is if you can provide people with a base level of decent life, you know, the, 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 the particular difference distance between them and the richest people in the world it's not clear to me that that's the most important statistic to look at. Our problem in the United States is, you know, we have right now something like 25 million people who are saying that they don't have enough to eat. We have people, you know, 35% of the of the unemployed are now classified as permanently unemployed. We have genuine hardship in this country. And if we can address that, and if we can get to the point where there is a kind of decent floor for people to live in, then particularly in America, I don't think this is an envious political culture. I think we would be able to survive, a, you know, a, a very large delta between the, between Jeff Bezos and and that. I don't think that that you know because it seems unlikely 
if you believe certainly Scheidel and people like that, they're going to get some miraculous uh, reordering. But at least we could provide a more decent life for more, most people. All right. And so what was the second trend? The, the second one would be if we have an accelerating uh, Cold War between the, the United States and China, I think all bets are off. I think that, you know, the open world economy, the liberal international order, the stability that it depends upon, uh, all that becomes much more complicated if you have the richest and second richest society in the world, the two most dynamic societies in the world, in a breakneck competition around things like space and cyber and arms, you know, and nuclear weapons and God knows maybe bioweapons. Bio, bio uh, with no concern about any cooperation on things like climate change. You know, that's a that's a pretty dark world. And I think it could spiral out of control. One of the things I worry about when we as we are approaching the U.S.-China relationship is there is an element here which reminds me of World War One, which is every country is doing what it thinks is the right thing to do. Uh, but in a very narrowly focused way without thinking about the impact it has on the other country. So when we do the things we do with China, you know, for example, toward Huawei, what that is doing is it's making China say, we have to develop an entirely indigenous uh, tech industry from computer chips up to software, entirely uh, uh, resistant to the United States cutting us off. That then means the Americans uh, respond to that, you know, and so on. So if you go down the spiral, where will that take us? It it, it could be t into a very different world than the one we're in. And it would be very different from the Cold War because the Soviet Union was a bit player in the, in the global economy. It was a bit player in most technologies. To give you a sense, the Soviet Union and the United States at the height of the Cold War in their best year did $2 billion of trade that year. China and the United States this year will do $2 billion of trade every day. So, you know, imagine a Cold War with that country. Yeah, that's not a not a comforting thought. Um, one of the things that you talk about in that section of the book, which I, I know we've sat on for a bit in this conversation, but I really do think it's maybe the most important part. There has been uh, increased during this period in U.S.-China enmity. And we've talked a bit how also during this period there has been more mistrust and uh, disgust towards America. You have a great quote from Fintan O'Toole in there about how it's one of the first times America has been viewed with pity. But for all that, China has become much more hated too. Um, I'm looking at a, a series of Pew polls here. And if you look in country after country after country, unfavorable ratings of China have just skyrocketed from 40 to 81% in Australia, from 16 to 74% in the UK, from 37 to 71% in Germany, from 31 to 75% in South Korea, from 42 to 86% in Japan, from 27 to 73% in Canada, and I could go on. What does it mean for the balance of power, not just that America's disliked, but that China has been uh, a villainous period, both more authoritarian and also the locus of coronavirus? They are not coming out of this with an enhanced global reputation either. And I wonder how that changes your strategic position. Well, first, part of this is just power. You know, the Soviet Union was not much loved. I, either the United States for much of its history has had, you know, mixed records. Be people don't like huge, powerful uh, countries uh, who hold their fate in their hands. You know, in other words, if you're a small country, the idea that you're your fate is determined by what is going to be ha going on in Washington or Beijing 
is somewhat unsettling. And so there's always been a certain suspicion of great powers and particularly of superpowers. Secondly, China is a thoroughly illiberal country and that to the extent that that has become more aware, more apparent, uh, you're seeing uh, you're seeing people reacting to that. I think COVID in a sense is the is the proximate cause. But what COVID does, and I write about this in the book, is it you know it was, it was a, it's symptomatic of a very secretive, control freaky dictatorship uh, that China always has been. So that part of it again it, it, it isn't that surprising. I, I think that what I take from your from from that recitation is the the sort of baseline calm or stability that I try to bring to the, the discussion of all this, which is. America is not doomed. Uh, the United States is, you know, it is not going to be, we're not going to be living in a Chinese world if we, we, we lose out on one trade deal here or there. China has many problems of its own. For one thing, it faces enormous economic issues. It faces a huge demographic issue. Uh, it has in, in a huge amount of corruption and dysfunction within it. It is not a particularly attractive model. It is not even viewed as a particularly attractive model, at least with the Soviet Union, there was a kind of alternative ideology that some people around the world believed in. When I was growing up in India, there were many people who, who really believed that the Soviet Union was the way of the future, not the United States. There's almost nobody who thinks that way about China because China does not really have a model. It's a kind of weird hodgepodge of part capitalism, part dictatorship. Uh, that's all been joined together in the service of the Chinese Communist Party. So I, I think it should make us all calm down. You know, we're, we need to do what we need to do to reform this country, to try to make, a, to make our international engagement commensurate with our interests and values. We, we don't need to run scared of China. China has its own issues, its, its own problems. And, you know, we, there's a limit to what we can do to, to change it. What we should really focus as much as we can on is what is it that we need to do for our own reasons? You know, we need to in, in, increase research and development spending in America because we need to do that, not simply to compete with China. We need to try to build out our infrastructure, not just because compared to the Chinese maglev trains, our trains are bad. We, you know, so if we if we can maintain that sense of of, of calm and stability and do what we need to do, we'll be fine. The United States is a very powerful, dynamic, diverse country. We have enormous strengths, and, and you know we should we should run fast, but we don't need to run scared. I think any advocacy of calming down, given where we started, is probably a good place to to circularly close. So let me ask you, what's always the end question here, which is, what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? Oh gosh, um, you know I didn't actually think this through because I I, I run to your podcast often, and so I knew that uh, that you asked this question. All right, I would say the books that I would recommend, there's a, there's a wonderful book called Cultural Evolution by a guy named Ronald Inglehart. Um, and there's a co-author, but Inglehart is one of the great political scientists who has done these world values surveys that you've probably come across. And this is sort of the culmination of really decades of these, these world value surveys where he, he tries to show you the broad shift that is taking place in the kind of mentality, the, the values of people around the world. It's really fascinating. So, you know, what you're seeing is a shift from people defining their identity on the basis of economics and instead moving to uh, self-expression, 
cult, you know, culture, race, gender, things like that. Um, it, 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 and there's more to it. You know, he really unpacks it in a really interesting way. So that's one. Um, second, at this moment in American history, I think uh, my old PhD advisor, Sam Huntington, wrote a book called American Politics, The Promise of Disharmony. Uh, and it was written in the in the 70s when America also seemed at a moment of total democratic dysfunction. And people forget now, but it was really seen as a as a point where we, 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 we were unable to to govern ourselves. And he puts it all in very nice historical perspective. And I, I thought that was uh, really terrific. Um, and finally, uh, what would I what would be the third book that I would I would recommend? I think um, I'm going to recommend a book that I just read, which you, you're probably going to laugh because I, I have read. My son recommended this to me, uh, but it's the book that I most thoroughly enjoyed in the last year reading, which is The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is just a lovely novel. And if you're feeling like, you know, this is a, a pandemic, and you have time on your hands. Uh, I, I thought it was you know, it was amazingly well written and yet very modern. You know, it's almost Dickensian in its long descriptions and things like that, but done with this incredible modern verve and joy. So I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it's funny. I reread that book during the pandemic. I, it's one of probably my top 10 favorite fiction books. I adore The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, as you would expect from a Jewish comic books nerd. So <laughs> <laughs> playing to type. Um, Free Zakaria, thank you very much. Such a pleasure, Ezra. Thank you to Fareed Zakaria for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jackson Bierfeld for engineering and producing. You guys are clan shows, Vox Media, podcast production. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.